want you to imagine you're in a room. And in that room are four or five doors. Now you don't know what lies behind any of those doors. But you kind of got to pick one. But it's hard. How do you choose the door? When you don't know what lies next. The room though, the room is familiar. I mean, you can see everything in the room. So the room's comfortable, the room's safe. So maybe you think, I'll just stay here. Whatever. And this is what we do in life. We go through we go through doors into rooms. That's what we do. But what we so often fail to appreciate is that we might walk past any one of those doors without realizing or putting together in our minds that behind each door is another room, but that room has more doors. And behind each of those doors are more rooms. And in those rooms, there are even more doors. And so on and so on this goes. What we fail to appreciate is that when we turn down one door, we're not just turning down one door. We're turning down all the rooms and all the doors that lie behind it, and they might number up to a thousand. So we're never turning down one door. We're turning down the first of a thousand doors. Welcome to the With Joe E.B. podcast. Today we're talking about the thousand doors. But before we get back to doors, let's talk a bit about rediscovering America. Because this is something I was guilty of, and something many of us have been guilty of, rediscovering America. I first rediscovered America when I was five years old. I've rediscovered it a couple of times since. And I was disappointed. I was very disappointed. Because when I rediscovered it, there was no party, no recognition. No one was impressed. I guess it's probably because heaps of people rediscover America every day. What I realized was that I was a couple of centuries too late. That Christopher Columbus is credited with discovering America, although it's not named after him, finally. He beat me to it. So that's me, five years old, hard done by. No one remembers the second person to discover America. They only remember Columbus. Though the ironic thing is that if he'd set out to discover America, it would have been a contradiction and a paradox because obviously America didn't exist before he found it. I mean, if it was already called America, that would have meant someone else had found it, which means it's not actually a discovery. And there wouldn't have been a map either. I mean, I'm sure something was contoured. I'm sure he wasn't just heading into nowhere with no idea what he'd find, but he hardly had an idea. That's what a discovery is, right? If the map already exists, then it's already been discovered. So that's the thing I learned about discoveries. That's the hard lesson that was beat into me as a five-year-old who'd had his life achievement wiped off his slate is that for something to be a discovery, it has to be unique. 
No one's found it before. That's a discovery. So when I think about each of us, I'm pretty confident that each of us does have a unique discovery that only we can make. It might not be, though, and don't get carried away, as big and grand as Columbus was. It might not be something that everyone recognises us for, that history remembers us for. But I don't even think that's important. I think what's important is learning where that discovery lies. We can't follow anyone to make our own discovery. If we do have a unique discovery, and that's not just something I'm saying to make you feel special and like you're unique, if it is true, we certainly can't follow anyone else there because no one's been there before. Columbus couldn't follow anyone. And that's the thing. Discoveries lie in the unknown. Opportunity. Real opportunity. The best opportunities live in the unknown. The people we give kudos to do what's never been done before. We're not in the habit of celebrating too much people have retraced the steps of giants. We're much more likely to reward and adore those who, as Sir Isaac Newton said, stand on the shoulders of giants to see what's never been seen before. So your unique discovery, whatever it is, lies hidden behind doors. You can't see it looking forward. You don't get to see it from one room with all the thousand doors lined up on the way. That's linear. The great things in life are not linear. Because if they were linear, if they were in the first room we found ourselves in, then everyone would find them and therefore they wouldn't be a discovery and therefore they wouldn't be our discovery because someone would have beaten us to it. So if we can't see it, if it's not linear and it's not in the room we're in now, we don't know what it is, there's no map because we haven't made it yet, then how, Joe, on earth, are we meant to make any sort of unique discovery in life? And the answer is simple. You can never be certain what room you're going to find it in. Bloody hell. You thought it was going to be easy? It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be fun. Certainty is a funny word, and uncertainty, wow. We're all afraid of uncertainty. That's why we choose the linear. We're uncertain what lies behind the door, so we're reluctant to go through them, because what if we don't like what we find? What if we can't come back? And we'll regret not taking one of the other paths. But opportunity lies buried in uncertainty. You remember that, right? So here's the thing. You don't know if it'll be in the next room. You don't know if it'll be in the room after that. But if you go through a thousand doors, if you go on what I call a thousand doors journey, you can be certain that you would have found it somewhere along the way. If you've been in that many rooms and seen that many things and done that many things differently to everyone else, the returns in life, the real returns in life, compound. But we've got to stop fearing uncertainty and start embracing it. So the doors metaphor will run, for the foreseeable future at least, all the way through this podcast. 
and all the way through my life in particular. It's the way I look at all the great things that really do come because they all come hidden behind doors. And so remember, the resources are all findable on the website, www.withjoeby.com. And you can also sign up via email there to get all these in the order that they are released. Blog articles with links to the podcast episodes. Apart from that, the usual message, as always, is to remember that the best way to open a thousand doors for you is to concentrate on opening doors for others. Thank you. Hello there, and uh, wow, it's good to be with you again. So it's been a long time since the podcast was up and running, but I wanted to take this episode before we moved on to season two, which is very exciting, to take time to reflect. I'm very proud of the journey we went on together, and there are a lot of lessons in there, things I can't pretend that I even remember on a, a daily basis. So I thought this would be a great opportunity to go back over some of the highlights Uh, some of my favorite moments and reflect on some of those key lessons that we've uh, been through and explored together. Um, I think a big one, you know, obviously just heard about the, the beautiful uh, kind of thousand doors, which kind of is, is my whole philosophy, which underpins all of this work and and everything I do. Um, And so, you know, next, uh, next I wanted to go back to one of the other big ideas, which is the, again, very early in the podcast, um, yet one of the most popular ideas and episodes is actually to do with the minimum viable lifestyle. So I'm going to go back there more specifically to that start of that episode and the, and the story of Nepal. So that's what you're going to hear next. On the 4th of January, 2018, I was terrified, absolutely terrified. I was terrified because I was going back to Nepal for the first time in two years, um, having a role running this nonprofit from the ground up that Nick Abraham got me involved in, it was time to go back to Nepal. Um, But I'd gotten sick the last time I was there in 2015. A lot of food poisoning, unrefrigerated pork sausages, long story for another time. And after dreading going back for so long, to finally get back there, I found something I never expected to find. Um... Wow. I just remember... Okay, so Nick, for a bit of context, Nick uh, set up a brick factory in Nepal to help provide jobs in this rural community. And he had this brick factory, and then he built a little home office that we would stay out of, and he lived there on the brick factory. So it was a tiny little thing. So Nepal in January is freezing. It's like zero degrees at night with not proper insulation and not really any heating. The bathroom is an outhouse, so it's separate. So you've got to walk outside in the cold to get to the bathroom. Um, he did have hot water this time, which was an addition, but the shower stream was so weak, the flow of the water is so weak, and the water was either completely freezing or super hot, and it was actually very hard to get it in between. So when I was showering, and for those watching the YouTube video, you can see me doing it, I was basically swaying in and out of the water 
so that I wouldn't burn my skin. That's how I would shower. To top it all off, <laughs> bless, but they, the workers had built, put the toilet way too close to the wall, right up against the wall, so you couldn't sit there naturally and, and flay your legs out. And basically got one knee on the wall. And it, was, it was so awkward, you know. Again, and I, I had the, the weirdest diet, trying not to get food poisoning, Vegemite and hot chips. So it wasn't the most comfortable time right cramped in there living on top of each other yet somehow the 10 days in january were 10 of the happiest days i've ever had in my whole life and it didn't make sense so welcome to the with joe Eby podcast good times back in nepal uh, always takes me back Okay, next, uh, again from the minimum, yeah, minimum, minimum viable lifestyle segment of the podcast um, is the story I told, uh, which is not my story, but is a timeless parable of the Mexican fisherman and the, and the banker. So this has come up a lot recently, so I thought this would be a great one to reflect on too. It's such a powerful story about how circular our modern way of life can be at times. So always important to be reminded. Have you ever heard the parable of the Mexican fisherman and the banker? Well, I'm going to read it to you. It's in a couple of books, the 80-20 principle, um, the four-hour work week, but it relates to our topic on the minimum viable lifestyle. An American investment banker was taking a much-needed vacation in a small coastal Mexican village when a small boat with just one fisherman docked. The boat had several large fresh fish in it. The investment banker was impressed by the quality of the fish and asked the Mexican how long it took to catch them. The Mexican replied, only a little while. The banker then asked why he didn't stay out longer and catch more fish. The Mexican fisherman replied, he had enough to support his family's immediate needs. The American then asked, but what do you do with the rest of your time? The Mexican fisherman replied, I sleep late, I fish a little, play with my children, take siesta with my wife. Stroll into the village each evening where I sip wine and play guitar with my amigos. I have a full and busy life, senor. The investment banker scoffed. I'm an Ivy League MBA and I could help you. You could spend more time fishing and with the proceeds buy a bigger boat. And with the proceeds from the bigger boat, you could buy several boats until eventually you would have a whole fleet of fishing boats. Instead of selling your catch to the middleman, you could sell directly to the processor, eventually opening your own cannery. You can control the product, processing, and distribution. Then he added, of course, you would need to leave this small coastal fishing village and move to Mexico City, where you would run your growing enterprise. The Mexican fisherman asked, but senor, how long will all this take? To which the American replied, 15 to 20 years. But what then? asked the Mexican. The American laughed and said, well, that's the best part. When the time is right, you would announce an IPO and sell your company stock to the public and become very rich. You could make millions. Millions, senor? Then what? To which the investment banker replied, then you would retire. You could move to a small coastal fishing village where you would sleep late, fish a little, play with your kids, take siesta with your wife, stroll to the village in the evenings where you could sip wine and play your guitar with your amigos. Yeah, wonderful. 
uh, next I want to go, where I'm just looking back at this episode now and it's got real fuck the system vibes, but, well, I've never thought consciously about it, but maybe that's the way we need to behave. Anyway, next is a bit of a fuck the system vibe too. It fits on from that theme and it comes back to the, uh, my favorite actually, part of this whole podcast, episode 93, the most dangerous word in the, uh, in, the, in our language, the most dangerous word in Western culture. Sorry. And, uh, yeah, my favorite episode. So that follows on from episode one and episode three, which are the previous two clips we've gone back to and obviously the thousand doors, but this is much later in the sequence at 93. Um, but yeah, my most treasured part of this podcast journey so far here, here it comes. So problematic. Now to top this all off, Warren Buffett, who was one of the most famous wealthy people of all time and most outspoken was this amazing video I found on YouTube the other day, just popped up into my feed. And he's talking about, you know, how you're going to measure success in your life when you're an old person like he is. He goes, I guarantee you when you're old, you're not going to measure it by money. I can guarantee you. You know, I'm very wealthy financially and I eat, you know, Burger King and whatever, KFC and, you know, loves, loves Coke. I think it's Coke, Coca-Cola. It's like, it doesn't buy me much better food than you, you know. Uh, my mattress is just like any other mattress, really. You don't get much better mattress, right? Money doesn't really improve that that much. The clothes I wear, mine are a little bit more expensive, but they don't look as good on me. So he's talking about all these things. So all the material stuff, they can only get so good, right? His house, his car, you know, he drove the same car for 10 years. It didn't bother him. You just upgrade it when you need to. So all these things. Money doesn't differentiate much. He said, what you will measure it by is the number of people and friends in your life who truly love you. And he told the story about one of his friends who's Polish background, Polish Jew background, who was, I believe, in the concentration camps in World War II. And he said, this friend, still to this day, when she looks at you and meets you, is asking one question in her mind, shaped by her past. And that question is, would you hide me? Hide me is in being hidden when the Holocaust was on. People come to kill you. And you relied on people who weren't Jews, maybe, to risk their life to hide you. And in that book where I got Taleb's quote about wealth, he talks about heroes. And heroes are... The opposite of what we call the agency. I'm not going to go into the agency or the principal agent problem. But heroes have only what we call... Well, heroes start out with a lot of upside. Things are okay for them. And they take on downside for other people. They take on risk. So in this example, that friend who is not Jewish, who is not a threat from authorities, is fine. They're safe. They can just do nothing and they'll be safe. Uh, physically, that is maybe not spiritually. By taking on someone, they take on all the risk. They only put themselves in harm. So in terms of their physical existence, they've, it's a completely counterintuitive decision, but we don't just live a physical existence. So who is someone that would hide you and take on only downside and completely throw away the upside they have? Who'd completely opt into risk on your behalf, which is the opposite of what we do in business and commerce? Who would hide you? 
how many people do you know would hide you? There can be no better question today. I had a question here, which is what is your, come up with your own definition of what success will look like, a picture that will look good to you, but far out. That's, so that's worth reflecting on, but geez, I think this one, you know, who would hide you? Who would hide you? From one of the richest men and successful, it looks like, men of all time, coming from his mouth. That's what he concentrates on. There is no more dangerous word in Western culture than success, this thing that everyone's chasing, which is a mirage. You invite people into, you live on the inside of your house, not on the outside. Now, who would hide you in theirs? The best way to open a thousand doors for you is to concentrate on opening doors for others. So who would open their door and let you into their home to hide? So those are the highlights, but there's obviously one different kind of highlight and that's the highlight that has been at the end of every or most episode and it's the the lesson we always end on right and i think it's really important to remember for me it's at the heart of the philosophy so last but not least i'll leave you with that message repeated again for the first time in a long time but some of the many times so take care and I'll see you in about a week or two for the, the dawning of season two on the philosophy of learning and education. I'm really of the opinion that the best way to open doors for you is to open doors for others. Because the best way to open a thousand doors for yourself is to concentrate on opening doors for others. The best way to open a thousand doors for you is to concentrate on opening doors for others. After all, the best way to open a thousand doors for you is to concentrate on opening doors for others.